The Beera Podcast. Research matters. Welcome to the Beera Podcast. I'm Nick Johnson, the Chief Executive of Beera. And today my guest is Rather Peramal, who talks about her research examining racialised disadvantage in UK higher education, and in particular, the ethnic minority degree awarding gap. Rather is a senior lecturer at the School of Education and Communities at the University of East London, where she teaches part-time on the BA in Education Studies. Her doctoral study, which examines factors contributing to the formation of the BME degree awarding gap and is the focus of our conversation today, is funded by the ESRC and supervised at the School of Education, Communication and Society, King's College London. The ideas she explores in this podcast are drawn from the draft theory chapter of her doctoral thesis. Aspects of this topic also featured in her contribution to the BIRA 2021 conference at a symposium entitled Degrees of Difference examining racialised disadvantage in UK higher education, which those of you who are delegates at the conference can still access on the platform if you want to hear more from Rather and her colleagues. In addition to her ongoing doctoral work, Rather is an active researcher exploring effective pedagogies for multilingual learners. She herself is multilingual and communicates in English as an additional language. Well, thank you for, for joining the, the Beera podcast. I'd like to start off just by asking you a little bit about how you came to be doing your, your PhD and doing the research that we're going to talk about later on, and in particular, how that tallies with your sort of part-time lectureship at, at UEL and a bit about the experience of marrying the two together to an extent. Well, thank you for having me on the podcast, Nick. So my my interest in, in the topic of the black and minority ethnic degree awarding gap stemmed from the work that I do as a part-time lecturer at the University of East London. And there I began to notice that there was a, a difference in the attainment and outcomes of my black and minority ethnic students as compared to their white British counterparts. And I started to wonder about that. And also, I too am minority ethnic, and I started reflecting on my own experiences of being a minority ethnic undergraduate and student. Just thinking about those ideas, just they coalesced. I read around the subject over a period of months, perhaps a couple of years. I realised at that point that this was quite an important issue that had been recognised in higher education, but, but perhaps hadn't been grappled with in the way that I would have expected it to have been. And so that sparked off my interest in in thinking about and in pursuing the topic as a doctoral research study. And so I applied to study at King's College London and there was accepted and I'm supervised at the School of Education, Communication and Society and I'm now at the data collection phase of my doctoral research. I mean, you talked about the, the degree awarding gap, but can you give us a bit more detail about what exactly is it you're you're hoping to find out, particularly with the data gathering phase? So the degree awarding gap is, is the terminology that's used to describe the difference in outcomes between black and minority ethnic students at university in comparison to their white counterparts. So the, the degree awarding gap is essentially a lower outcome for minority ethnic students. And we see it occurring right the way through their undergraduate studies and also into their degree classifications. Now, this isn't something that happens across the board because there are some institutions that have succeeded in narrowing or reducing their degree awarding gap. But it is accurate to say that the degree awarding gap is remains fairly prevalent in the higher education sector in the country. 
And, and I mean, I'm right in thinking when, when you presented at the Bureau of Conference, you were talking about it, that it is almost in every higher education institution and also across all subjects. Yes. It, if there are differences in outcomes between black and minority ethnic students and their white counterparts, their white peers, but the size, if you like, of those differences or the gaps differs depending on a variety of factors, which can include the the discipline of study, the institution, the diversity of students and staff at the institution, or indeed in a particular school or college. There are infrastructure and institutional factors that can also come into play. And this is only a small number of the factors that research has demonstrated can have an impact on the extent of the degree awarding gap in a higher education institution. Mm. And did you, have you sort of spotted as any particular distinction between sort of Russell Group or post-92 universities, or is it less obvious than that? So the research tells us that the degree awarding gaps exist and are statistically significant in both Russell Group universities and post-1992 institutions. But what we can also acknowledge or appreciate is that there is a greater proportion of black and minority ethnic students at post-1992 institutions. And where the degree awarding gap relates primarily to black and minority ethnic students, we can start to see a prevalence, if you like, of, of that degree awarding gap, of that phenomenon occurring in post-1992 institutions, although I make the point again that the degree awarding gap in both Russell Group and post-1992 institutions are statistically significant. And you talk also about it being consistent with variations across subject areas as well. Um, And I mean, I guess particularly between sort of humanities and STEM, I mean, were, were there any particular patterns there that you've spotted? Right. Again, I'm drawing from the literature And what the literature tells us is that, yes, there is, there remains a degree awarding gap across many, if not all, disciplines. But we see those gaps to be wider, for example, in education disciplines and social science ones, as opposed to the STEM disciplines. And to some extent, they are perhaps attributable to the methods of assessment that come into play, which is something that the literature has already acknowledged and also accepts. Yeah. Um, And I suppose thinking again of the literature that you've been reviewing as part of this this work, I mean, I guess one of the first questions we come to is why is this happening? What what are the causes? And I mean, you talk about maybe the assessment methods. What your research telling you are some of the, the causes of this? So we know that there are different contributing factors to the formation of the degree awarding gap across institutions. And I think one of the points I also want to make at this at this stage is to say that degree awarding gaps and the contributing factors differ across different institutions. And those contributing factors can be, as I mentioned earlier, issues associated with institutional infrastructure, academic content that's being delivered, how it's being assessed, demographic factors at the institution, its geography, the diversity of students and staff, etc. Now, these factors can change or alter over relatively short periods of time. So if, for example, there is a larger minority ethnic intake of students in one particular year or a smaller intake of minority ethnic students in one particular year to a programme or to a course, we can start to see that some of those changes in the demographics of the student body can have an impact on the size of the degree awarding gap in that 
institution, in the school, in the faculty, or even in the programme. So these gaps occur at virtually every level of academic assessment or academic endeavour. And it's when they are combined that, that they provide an institution what we could think of as a headline figure. And those are the numbers that the higher education sector, if you like, marks as the degree awarding gap for any particular institution. So when we think about how that degree awarding gap is constituted, we can start to recognise how the different factors that lie underneath it constantly flex and change in relation to each other over time. To say that the degree awarding gap for any one institution is unstable is really putting it rather mildly. And, and you, you talk about that, the impact that a large change in cohort can make to that. And I'm interested in exploring that a little bit further in terms of how do you have a positive impact, I suppose, on reducing the gap? Have you noticed a pattern in things that actually exacerbate the gap? Well, it's quite difficult to, to identify specific factors because they always act in conjunction with other factors. And it's impossible to evaluate one particular factor in a vacuum, yeah. if you like, because they're always it's always interacting with, with other factors. But there are approaches that have been seen to be meaningful in attending to aspects of the degree awarding gaps in institutions that have been more successful in reducing it in the past. We see greater attention to supporting minority ethnic students on their arrival in transition from level three studies into level four at university as being quite supportive and, and useful. But I would also say that, that it, it isn't just initiatives that work at one point of contact in an institution. This idea of, of working to address these differences in outcome for this particular group of students needs to be at the forefront of institutional initiatives and thinking across the board. It's not, it wouldn't necessarily work, I would suggest, for it to be an initiative that's addressed, for example, for students who are starting university and then for all those initiatives to fall away further along the line in undergraduate study, for example. Having said all of this, I do want to make an important point at this stage, which is that my research doesn't aim to position minority ethnic students as perennially disadvantaged, if you like, in higher education. That is not the point that I want to make in my in my doctoral thesis. But what I do and what I do also want to say is that in my research design of my PhD study, I am allowing for space to include the voices and experiences of successful black and minority ethnic students in higher education. I would say that they are understudied, if you like, in research in this area. And I hope to be able to highlight not necessarily success stories, but certainly stories of, of black and minority ethnic students who have been able to successfully navigate the higher education landscape. I'm not proposing to kind of crudely kind of ask them what their strategies were and hope that that would apply across the board to others, because I know that that doesn't work. But it would be interesting to be able to highlight an alternative account of black and minority ethnic students' experiences in higher yeah. education. Uh, I mean, that, that sort of leads me on, really, to talk about how how your particular research, in a sense, complements the literature, because you talked a bit about what the literature tells us. Um, and aside from those sort of those the personal stories, whether they're positive or negative experiences, what else are you hoping to, to achieve in, in your research to add to our understanding of this? Let me tell you a little bit about my 
research design. So I am seeking to interview a group of black and minority ethnic students who are in their final year of their undergraduate degrees at a university. Um, and I'm also proposing, in fact, I'm in the process of interviewing university academics and senior managers in leadership positions at the same institution who are tasked with the responsibility of formulating and implementing initiatives intended to attend to the degree awarding gap at that institution. At the same time, I have a third category of participants I am speaking to, and they are student advocates who are employed at the institution's student union, who act in this interesting interface position between the mediating between the institutions and advocating for the students. So these are the three participant groups that I'm working with. I'm also interrogating policy initiatives and policy documentation in a documentary analysis approach, which is another strand of my data collection process, to explore the forms of words and language that are being used in relation to um, addressing the degree awarding gap at this institution. So in summary, I am pursuing a critical case study as the overarching kind of vehicle, if you like, in which my research is located. The, the literature is quite full on what the gap looks like, but not necessarily on why it's there and, and leading to yeah. responses. And I mean, one of the things that I was struck by when I've been looking at the literature on this is just how stubborn the problem is. And it's it, yes. it hasn't necessarily got better or worse, but it's still there and you can track it for a long period and, and I suppose why do you think that is because it's not like particularly in recent years there's been it's been a problem that's been acknowledged and there's been perhaps more than lip service paid in terms of efforts to to address it but nothing seems to be really budging that gap. I've already mentioned the different contributing factors and the way that they flex and interact with each other relating to the institution so there are two other factors that I'd like to speak to you about too. And the first is the stakeholders. Let's take a hypothetical institution situation and we imagine that a group of people who have an interest within that the stakeholders in that institution come together and they decide that they determine that the degree awarding gap is the issue that they are coming together to address, to tackle. So these stakeholders will be drawn from a variety of interest groups within the institution, which would include, but perhaps not be confined to, senior leadership members, academics, students, student union representatives, and other interested parties within the university community and beyond. Every single one of these stakeholders will have a view about how the degree awarding gap is formed within that institution. And each one of these people will also have very subjective views that are based on their experiences that informs their values and beliefs. But the reality is, is that there is no way of knowing who is right or whose ideas are necessarily going to address that degree awarding gap. And this is the nature of, I guess, the way in which the degree awarding gap is viewed as a problem that is relatively fairly linear. That's here is the problem, here are the solutions we can address it with, and it should be solved. But as you've rightly pointed out, that strategy hasn't worked. And the reason it hasn't worked, I argue, is because the degree awarding gap is a wicked problem. So what's a wicked problem? A wicked problem is a problem that is 
couched in social complexity, which is made up of factors that interact with each other and can change the complexion and the complexity and the nature even of that of that problem over time. So I've alluded to that to some extent when I've mentioned the contributing factors that can help to form the degree awarding gap. These stakeholders that I mentioned also with their very subjective views about what is and isn't contributing to the problem are also another kind of contributing factor and another another explanation. And finally, the third point, there are others, but I'll confine myself to three, is the way that the data regarding the degree awarding gap is gathered institutionally. So what I mean by that is when we think about a university's data sets regarding the attainment and the outcomes of its students across an academic year, What usually happens in terms of the timing is that that data for the preceding academic year is captured in the summer, perhaps early autumn of the academic year. So that data tells us about the nature and the factors that and the stakeholders' opinions that contributed to the degree awarding gap and the initiatives to attend to it in the preceding year. But that is the data that institutions use to inform their initiatives perhaps going forward in the next academic year. But what we can't predict is in the next academic year what the student demographics are going to be like, what the institutional initiatives and structures that are going to be influencing those factors are going to be. So in effect, what I'm saying is that This is a wicked problem that is essentially attempting to be resolved with, to a large extent, out-of-date institutional data. If we're lucky, it's out-of-date by one year. But if we're not, it can be, you know, more than a year old. And the circumstances that led to that data being generated may no longer exist at the time that the initiatives that are formulated to attend to it based on that data are made. Presumably, as you say, for an institution, the context matters more if you're just doing it on a single institution level rather than across the sector. Yes, I agree with the observation that you've made up to a point, Nick, that institutions perhaps could be working together more effectively and pooling their resources and, and certainly thinking and speaking to each other about the ways in which they are thinking about attending to this concern. But I would caution against um, what seems to be a trend in the sector in recent years, and that is to to take a set of initiatives that were successful in one particular institution and um, highlight it across the sector as an example of good practice and encourage other institutions to adopt it wholesale. Now, the uniqueness of every institution, which I hope has been, you know, I've been able to to demonstrate is the case in the sector, means that this one size fits all approach, which is rather a crude way of describing it, perhaps, is not likely to work because universities are very different, as 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 I've indicated earlier on. And so, this too, I would suggest, is part of the reason why the degree awarding gap is persistent. And it's been with us for 30 years. I argue that until as a sector, we start to think about how we are conceptualizing the concern and its kind of formative factors. Until we do that, 
In a previous job, I wrote once about the, the tyranny of toolkits, this idea that something could be rolled out a, across the board. So I know where you're coming from from on that. I, I suppose it's just thinking about pooling that knowledge, even if you're not pooling the solutions, but it's pooling the knowledge, isn't it, to, to have that understanding. And I mean, I guess to some extent you're hoping to do that with your your research that will give that broader understanding of, of what's going on that will allow institutions to tailor their own responses. And I mean, in, in terms of, I mean, this may be jumping ahead to the end of your research, so apologies for that. But in terms of looking at the institutional level, who do you think are the key players in an institution in bringing about positive change? Who, who would you most like to read your thesis and your findings and, and sort of think, actually, that's something we can do something about? Those are slightly different questions, but I'll answer them both. It is one of the the, the key observations I make in my study that the forgotten stakeholders in much of this are the black and minority ethnic students. And what I'm proposing to do in my study is to foreground the minority ethnic students' voice foreground their experiences of higher education. I have hypothesized in the past at a previous bureau conference, actually, about the existence of what I refer to as an ethnicized university experience, meaning that minority ethnic students experience higher education differently from their white counterparts. So when we when we think about students and what their views are, we start to perhaps be able to view the higher education process from the perspective of the stakeholder group that is experiencing higher education and also the group for whom the degree awarding gap is happening to. So that answers the first part of your question. Who would I like to read it? Well, obviously, I would say that the people in influential positions in the higher education sector ought to be paying, I hope, some attention to some of the findings that I make, not least because they are the groups that need to be giving students the opportunities to to raise their voices, to express their views in ways that are meaningful and can influence institutional and sector policy going forward. And we think about this at Beira quite a lot in terms of the relationship between research policy and practice is how much of the ways of addressing this are rooted in practice and sort of institutional cultures or how much are they policy orientated, do you think? So, so the two are intimately connected, aren't they? The human interaction is what happens in the implementation of policy. So, so the two are you know, intimately interconnected. And this is a good opportunity for me to introduce what I refer to as the as the human element in this. And this is the the interactions that black and minority ethnic students experience at university, not only between each other, but with their white counterparts, with their tutors, and the institutional infrastructures that may or may not be sympathetic to the lived experiences of black and minority ethnic students. In this human element, this human aspect that, that I'm referring to, you know, I, I include issues associated with bias, be it unconscious or conscious, microaggressions that minority ethnic students experience, and of course, ultimately, the kinds of racism that we have begun to see reported in the press that are occurring at universities. All of this come together to create this very complex mix of factors that ultimately mean that a minority ethnic student in higher education has quite a lot to contend with in addition to engaging with their studies. So 
perhaps it wouldn't be too surprising to expect that this could see itself manifested in outcomes that are not as high as we would expect. So, yeah, I mean, part of it is is the reflection of the society in which higher education operates, isn't it, in terms of to that, as you were saying, and, and I suppose thinking inwardly towards BIRA as a, as a research association. And it's one of the things that we're trying to work out, what's our role in this? And while it's a, we're a small cog in a much larger system, I suppose, from experiences and from your research so far, what are the things that we as a learner society could be doing differently to, to help address this? As you say, it, it, everything's interconnected. So if we can do one small part of it, then that's progress. Sure. Well, I obviously be speaking to some extent anecdotally based on some of my own experiences and what I know to be happening in and around the spaces that I occupy, not just in higher education, but also in my PhD study. I have found the opportunities to present at BERA to be very helpful. And I would be very interested to see opportunities opening up for other black and minority ethnic early career researchers. They are fairly accessible because after all, I'm here, aren't I? But at the same time, I'm also conscious that I'm part of a fairly small minority of black and minority ethnic early career researchers that is who is fairly active within the BERA community. I think BERA is playing an important role in encouraging black and minority ethnic early career researchers to come forward and present and share their ideas. I think this is a great start because we are underrepresented in higher education. And my view is that, and I speak to some extent from my own experience, I was once an undergraduate student at a university where I did not see representations of myself leading lectures or seminars that I attended. So black and minority ethnic students cannot be what they cannot see. And so this, to some extent, could be contributing to what's been referred to as the leaky pipeline. So where we have minority ethnic students with lower outcomes in their undergraduate studies, it means that fewer of them are able to access postgraduate study and then go on to postgraduate research and go on to become academics. By perhaps encouraging participation in academic endeavour, perhaps at undergraduate level and also at master's level. These are the kinds of, of roles that I would suggest that, that research organisations like BERA might consider to encourage minority ethnic academics to come forward. What's the timescale for your research? When can we expect to, to sort of see some outcomes and, and learn a bit more about this and hear some of those those personal stories that you're hoping to collect? So I'm in the data collection phase of my research and I'm expecting to continue to gather data into Easter and the early summer of 2022. And at that point, I mean, I will be kind of analysing my data as I go along, but I think I'll need to spend some time doing that, following on from that. So I'll not be submitting my thesis much before the next kind of two and a half, three years. No, well, it's good. I mean, as you say, if you're analysing things as as you go, and hopefully, again, the literature will be evolving as well as the the data collecting, but um, it's such a stubborn problem that um, anything that sheds more light on it over time and helps people address it is is to be welcome. So thank you for taking the time today and good luck with the, the next phases of thank your work. You. Not at all. Thank you for having me.